Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Now, today's guest, a TV and radio presenter, a hotelier, a wellness coach. It's a pleasure to welcome Bibi Baskin. And Bibi, you grew up in Donegal. What was, what was that childhood like? Well, the childhood was pretty gloomy, Des, you know. I grew up, I suppose, I was coming into teenage years, say, in the mid-60s. Uh, and, and even then, it was still very gloomy and, and kind of lonely for me in particular because my beloved father died when I was six. I mean, all of a sudden, I, I've told this story before, he, uh, he brought me out for a walk after school uh, which would have been about four o'clock, and he was dead by six. So mm. that created an awful emptiness, uh, which, of course, is very tough for my mother to being widowed at age 38 with three girls and in the wilds of Donegal, you could say. Uh, I, I also then, being Church of Ireland, I went to a, a small Protestant school that was so small in number that I never had a classmate in my whole life in that school. So that mm. was the early part of the life for me. But I, I wasn't aware that it was pretty gloomy because I didn't know otherwise, Des. So in, in essence, it was great because I didn't know the difference. Because mm. that was tough on your mum and you girls yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. And how did she cope with it, Bibi? I don't remember the early days so much. I, she was busy. I always describe it that she was busy trying to create a new life. I remember, for example, she had to learn to drive a car. She'd never done that before. And I was also very taken with music. She sent me for piano lessons to the nuns when I was seven. And, I, and we had a television as well in the 50s, which was unusual. So I spent a lot of time reading and uh, playing, thumping on the piano, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, I had one friend who lived opposite, but no school friends, you see, yeah. because they all lived in the country and I lived in the village. So there you go again. But for mum, ah, yeah, I think it was very tough. Yeah. And what, when you were a reader as a child, what did you read? Oh, you know, Enid Blyton, The Famous Five, Mallory Towers, all that stuff. I'd get the big Beano annuals and Topper annuals from Santa Claus every year, and I loved them. And I remember at 12, I remember I read uh, Wuthering Heights for the first time, and for the first time, I fell in love <laughs> with Heathcliff. <laughs> yeah. And still being read by young girls today, which is... Extraordinary yeah. how it has survived so long. And you had a TV. Do you do you recall any childhood TV programmes? Well, there was Sooty, that little teddy bear yeah. guy, and his friend. I can't remember the friend's name. And then there was the Barnstormers. Um, and we, you see, being in Donegal, we could get the BBC because that was in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we, we had a, a choice. That's about the height of it. Oh, yeah, there used to be Sunday night at the London Palladium. Oh, yeah. And there was wrestling. On, on the wrestling <laughs> on, would, on the Saturday, but, yeah. That was very different yeah. to the wrestling now. I don't know what it was and I yeah. don't know why I watched it. You're a sports person. I mean, do you <laughs> do you like wrestling, Des? Well, it's, all, it's, it's showbiz now, I think. But I remember all that Saturday yeah. afternoon stuff, uh, Mick McManus yeah. and... 
Oh, Mick I'll McManus, just, you're right. He was yeah. the baddie, yeah. He was the yeah. baddie. So when, what age were you when you left Donegal, baby? I left Donegal at 12 and I went to boarding school in Dublin. Mm. And my two sisters, uh, whom I mentioned earlier there, uh, they were eight and, and are still uh, eight and nine years older than me. So again, going back to the earlier years and then into the teenage years, there was always that big age gap. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, Des, say when I was six, when daddy died, they were f six and eight, 14 and 15. So they were then into makeup and boys maybe. And yeah. I was still in dolls, you see. And we never really caught up. And music wise as well, we were worlds apart because that was the era, you know, when I was coming into my teens and really listening to music properly for the first time, I suppose, uh, they were then in their early 20s. So they were going to the dance halls of old and hearing all the country and Western music. But of course, it was the Irish country and Western type mm -hmm. that you would know. And the truth of the matter is, I never liked it. <laughs> I never liked it. We would have an old transistor radio in the house and I discovered Radio Luxembourg and I'd be listening to all the pop stuff on Radio Luxembourg on my own. And I became a huge Motown girl and I'm still to this day. I just loved that whole sound from Detroit way back in the 70s. Uh, it's never left me. I love the rhythm and I love dr the drumming in a lot of it because I always seem to fall in love with drummers. You know, <laughs> everybody loved the Paul and the George and the, and the John of the Beatles. I loved Ringo. That was and, definitely uh, a minority. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm used to being a minority. <laughs> I'm a bloody minority everywhere I go, it seems, you know. <laughs> but certainly in terms of Donegal then and the choice of music, uh, I never met anyone else who loved Motown like I did. All right, let's hear Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Oh, lovely. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. So, Bibi, after school, where did life take you? After school, you know, and I'd say this, there's such a lot of worry and concern now amongst young people about the Leaving Cert in particular. Uh, I would say to them, you, you might end up like I did, which was that I hadn't a clue what I was going to do and what I trained to do, I never ended up using anyway, uh, formally. So, you know, these exams that you take, uh, my, my postgrad is in Indo-European mythology. I mean, what the actual <laughs> hell is that, you know? <laughs> so I would say to the young folk, don't worry, it's very upsetting, but you, you don't necessarily have to worry. Um, I was a teacher for a year and a half. I love Angelga. Marisolda, Anna Cuccidini, I love yeah. Irish. And I taught Irish for about a year and a half. But then, Des, I realised a very big thing that was to characterise me up, well, for the rest of my life and today and hopefully for a long time yet, uh, is that I don't like repetition. And when you're a teacher, you know, you're teaching the Tishal Ginnajuk this year to a bunch of faces and names called John and mm. Sue. And then the next year, you're teaching the same Tishal Ginnajuk to Paddy and uh, Janet. Yeah. And they have the same difficulties every year. So I knew that that couldn't sustain me for 40 years. So I quit and I decided to become a journalist. And I started off as a freelancer, feature writing, 
And then eventually I ended up in a place called RTE. Mm -hmm. uh, and suppose you could say the rest is history. Well, you had extraordinary success uh, as a presenter and, uh, and very quickly. Thank you. And in, in your chat shows, have, have you favourite memories of who you interviewed? God, no. No. Do you know what's happening nowadays? I mean, Des, this was a long, long time ago. This was in the late 80s and the 90s. And I think sometimes we forget, I certainly do, that, you know, 1990 was actually 30 years ago. And it's not that I believe I'm suffering from menopausal amnesia, or maybe I should mm -hmm. be, but I'm not. It's just that it was so long ago and we did so many shows. Now, I counted once in a moment of idleness that I've presented more than a thousand live TV shows. Wow. So it does become a bit of a blur. And, you know, nowadays down here in Cork, and as recently as maybe just before the lockdown, I would meet people every couple of months and they might say, Oh, I remember when you did a show in our very small town and I was a, a group of set dancers and I'm looking at them <laughs> yeah, and I'm thinking, I haven't a bloody clue and I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, but I remember, like 1990, I remember the excitement of Italian 90 and all that and oh, yeah. you and Packy and... Yeah, I was, you know, that morning that they came back home, our wonderful team. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it was a Saturday, I believe, and I was painting the house. I don't mean beautiful artwork. I mean painting the walls of the house. Uh, when I got the call from RTE saying, listen, we think it's going to be bigger than we expected this homecoming. Could you come in? And Des, I remember pulling the magnolia paint out of my hair, <laughs> throwing myself into a skirt suit, and off I went to one of the most exciting things you'd ever be asked to do yeah. in television. It was a great moment. Yeah, well, it was great excitement, certainly, yeah. yeah. And, and then, but the contrast between that, the excitement of moments like that, and, and others would see, probably people who don't know television would see television as so glamorous and exciting. But to yeah. contrast that with head, heading to India and, and your next life then, yeah. as a, in a hotel, it was a hell of a contrast, wasn't it? <laughs> It was, but you see, I suppose you could say I took a bit of a figuri because <laughs> I, I thought, no, I'm done now with this broadcasting. I'd, I'd worked in London for five years in broadcasting too. Mm -hmm. And I'd come to the realisation after five years that there wasn't really much difference in working in television there or here at home in Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought, this isn't for me. Uh, I was just turning 50, I think, yeah. Um, and I sold the house and sold the car and thought, what the hell am I going to do next? And I had no idea. So I went on a little holiday to clear the head. I went for three weeks to India where I'd never been before. And I stayed for 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, and, no and good at the sums, you see. No good at the sums. No, but but remarkably, I was talking to one of my colleagues yesterday, Ashley on autocue here yesterday in Orty, and I told her I was going to be talking to you, and she says, "Oh my God, I was in her hotel." I said, "You were not." Yeah. And she said, "I couldn't yeah. afford to stay there, but we went there and had lunch and stayed by the pool all day, and it was an amazing place." She said. So tell oh, us about God. it. Well, I will, and, and you know, does that. Oddly enough, it's not as uncommon as you would expect. Uh, very frequently, again, before lockdown times, when I would go to events, invariably maybe every three months or so, somebody would come up and say, I stayed in your hotel. And immediately I would think, oh, my God, were we OK? Did we get it all <laughs> all right? Small, <laughs> uh, small world, though. Yeah, it is a small world. Mm. It is. 
Yeah, somebody, who was it? Somebody wrote in some newspaper about me that I put that part of India called Kerala, that I put Kerala on the map in Ireland. Yeah, a lot of people have been since, a lot of Irish people have been all around India and Kerala in particular. But, but it, anyway... Describe it yeah. first, though. I'm told it was, it was it's a very luxurious type hotel. Well, you know what happened there was... Um, I had no income, I had no job, and I thought, like a lot of people who used to work in media and then give it up, I thought, I'll write the book. Well, the book didn't happen, but that's what I thought at the time. And then I thought, that's going to take quite an amount of time, so I better put a roof over my head. So that was, I was maybe a year or so there at that stage. Uh, so I bought this old landmark building that had uh, a lot of uh, uh, outhouses, and all of it was in a sorry, sorry state. And I thought, I'll write the book there. And one thing led to another, and to cut that short, I uh, thought this was the, the main reason for uh, heading in the direction of a hotel. I thought, this is going to be a bit lonely. I, I think I should maybe bring guests in and, and see how that goes. I say lonely because India is a country of arranged marriages. There's no dating. There's no, the girls and the women, they generally don't drink, not down in my part anyway. So there would be no such thing as ringing up a mate and saying, come on, we go to the wine bar for a glass of wine. Mm. It was pretty lonesome that way. I wasn't lonely, but I thought it might be nice to have guests because I'd also seen this other English woman do that. So I did it up to a high standard. I did it up myself because I wanted to play house, really. And I put in a pool. I put in the pool because at age 38, I had struggled to learn to swim at five in the morning I remember in pools that. in Dublin. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that, I yeah. was useless at it, useless. <laughs> but I got there in the end and I thought, well, by God, I'm going to have me a pool now if I can afford it at all. One thing led to another and I had to be uh, examined, as it were, for this service level. I created a little restaurant, a little health centre. We had the pool, nice bedrooms. And then the big boys came to inspect it, uh, examine it or inspect it, to say, am I a two-star for these guests or three-star or what? And they said, oh, no, you're four-star. You are now a heritage hotel of India because of the refurb you've done and the services that you provided. And that's how I became a hotelier. I've yeah, no war. <laughs> well, the cost of a hotel, it gives the impression that you, oh, she must have loads of money. Well, I presume it was a lot cheaper to get work done, etc., was it? Yeah, it was indeed. Yeah, the cost to the guest, they might think, uh, you know, if everything is that cheap in India, why, why are we paying good rates here? Mm. Uh, it's just a whole other system or, uh, towards money. We would have to pay, for example, a luxury tax because we had bathtubs. I mean, in the name of God, <laughs> bathtub, and you have to pay this extra colossal tax. So all sorts of things like that that you wouldn't expect. Uh, but uh, some parts of India are cheaper. Some things in India are cheaper for sure. But I came to this conclusion, and I do think it's right. Sure, you can get uh, a hotel room or a place to stay in India for a tenner a night, but... Mm. You get what you pay for. Yeah. And you and I would not want to stay in that room with mosquitoes and a hard mattress and one pillow and only one sheet and the toilet. We won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 Bibi, it sounds like a massive amount of work. I mean, was there any downtime for you in, in running a place like that? 
Uh, I don't need a lot of downtime, you know. If I love what I'm doing, it really doesn't matter a hoot. Um, I had plenty of helpers. By Indian law, I had to have an Indian business partner, and I did have him, and he'd been in hospitality business, and he was a huge help in terms of teaching me how to get do the Indian system the Indian way. I would have made a right mess of that. But, yeah, while I was doing it up, uh, you know, and I've never been a thin stick of a woman, but when I was doing it up, I lost seven kilos with the stress of it all. Wow. Wow. I really did. Had you language issues? Oh, a great gas with that. I had about 40 men working for me on the refurbishment at the time, and they worked super fast, by the way, which was unusual, and everybody was quite surprised by that. I was probably haranguing them, and I didn't really know it, with my Western ways, you know? <laughs> but the plumber, Mr Joy Plumber, this guy, head plumber with the most wonderful name, Mr. Joy. And he and I, he didn't speak any English, but whatever we bit of the local language I had then learned at that stage, having only been a year there, we managed. And the engineer used to say, I don't know what language you two speak, <laughs> but it seems to work. So, yeah, we managed. And your second musical choice is a reminder of that time. I'll have to ask you to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, can I tell you the story behind that, Des? Yeah, well, you see, I made the decision, as I mentioned there earlier, to go on this three-week holiday to India. And that morning, at about three or four in the morning, the minicab arrived to pick me up in London to bring me to Heathrow. And the first little thing, and this could be called synchro destiny. Now, that's a very big mouthful, but it's a thing I've been studying lately. And in simple terms, what it means is the little coincidences that happen to all of us in life. You know how you'll be saying, you think, God, I didn't ring Mary for six months. I should have rung her. Yeah. And an hour later, Mary rings yes, you. You know yeah, that? Yes, yeah. We call them coincidences. If you believe in synchro destiny, they're not. They are little maps, little signs, like your intuition and your gut feeling to guide you on your way towards your destiny. And I don't know if I believe it fully or not, I'm still studying it, but that morning, where I thought I was going on a three-week holiday, the driver in the minicab turned out to be from the subcontinent. And he was playing this wonderful music that I'd never heard before. And of course I asked him what it was and whipped out my notebook and wrote it down. And I felt, looking back on it now, I, I'm preparing a book these days about my time in India and I've written that bit. And I do think, in a sense, it was an omen of what was to come, that I wasn't going on a holiday at all. I was going on a whole new life adventure for 15 years. So this is a, a Sufi, mystical, uh, devotional hymn, uh, Islamic, and the wonderful singer is Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, and the song is Allah Hu. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. You say you loved the work. It was clearly very hard work and, and, and not much downtime, etc. Were you reluctant to return to Ireland or what was the draw to bring you back to Ireland? No, Des, not reluctant at all. It was a choice. And, you know, it, people could be forgiven for asking the question, well, if you loved India that much, why did you come back? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I found the whole Indian experience full of mystery. And it is mystical as well, and sometimes almost quite magical. And there were so many things in it that uh, absolutely flabbergasted me at times, but also intrigued me. And doing a start-up 
on your own and not being a businesswoman and doing that in a developing country. You know, that was pretty full on stuff. But then after maybe about 12 years, all that intrigue was gone because the familiarity had set in. I knew everything I wanted or needed to know about running that hotel. Mm -hmm. And also, I was getting a bit older. And, you know, bodily energies do change when you get older. There's no, that's not an ageist thing at all to say. It's reality. And I wanted a bit of an easier life. Yeah. Uh, and no matter how much people would say about Ireland that, oh, you know, the traffic's awful. And here in Cork, <laughs> they talk about the Jack Lynch Tunnel. And I just laugh and I say, Jesus, you want to see the traffic in India where there are no rules of the road, mate. I mean, that's just one example. So I wanted to come back into something that's that little bit more organised. Uh, and that's why I came back. And again, it was a great decision. I love being back. Love it. Absolutely. Did you find Ireland different? Had, had, had it changed much? Uh, well, of course, not as much as it's about to change and changing, as mm. we know at the moment. Um, I noticed uh, that two things I would say that I didn't like uh, about the change, nothing else. And I didn't find huge changes, no, not at all. Um, I find that Irish people are killing themselves with rushing around and I think they maybe need to reorganise their priorities after this lockdown and COVID gets sorted uh, because I believe they were killing themselves uh, mentally as well as physically. Not all of them, but the, the person I'm talking about is typically maybe uh, someone who's self-employed in their 50s and, and that was just too crazy. Mm. That's one thing. The other thing is something that seems almost simplistic, but you know, it's not in essence, I believe. It is that I think Irish people have forgotten how to smile. We used to be very good humoured, up for the crack, and we still are. But, you know, in India, you would meet these people, and India taught me how to smile. I mean, nowadays when you meet me, I probably can't take the bloody silly grin off my face. But it's such a lovely way to communicate with people, mm -hmm. and we don't do it often enough. That's what I would say. But probably because we're rushing around so much is why we're not smiling. One leads to the other, does it not? Yeah, and it does. And, and the rushing around creates stress and anxiety. And that sense of calm energy is, is not there. And it's an awful pity because it would have been damn useful at a time like COVID to have that calm energy about you. But that was never there because they were rushing. So I suppose the smiles went out the window with the rush. Yeah, and but so we'll see what happens now, post-Covid. Indeed. And, and your website now is about those very areas, isn't it? Mindfulness, health and wellness. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a study of mine since before I went to India. A lot of people think this is something I kind of picked up and was intrigued by when I went to India. There's a particular system of wellness in India uh, that I talk about a lot, I know, called Ayurveda. And I'd started to study that in Dublin. It's just that that wouldn't have been the sort of thing we had on the BB show, to, as you'll understand. <laughs> so it never got an outing. But I was very taken with that. So, yeah, wellness has been part of me for decades. But can I just say that I'm not that sort of a stickler for everything being perfect. I like my gins and tonics, my glass of wine as, as much as anybody else. So if you want to be a real wellness guru, you know, you need to go and live in a hut up on the side of the Himalayas. <laughs> I live in Cork, for God's sakes, you know. <laughs> so obviously not to live up in the hills, you know. So explain Ayurveda oh, yeah. to us as, as how it can be part of your everyday life. 
Well, you know, if I can quote or paraphrase what the Irish GP told me decades ago about wellness in general and, and Ayurveda in particular, he said, you don't have to live this strict life of raw food and, you know, drinking kale. Oh, my God, the thought of it. I don't do any of that. But he said, if you want to have your fun, you know, uh, put some goodness back in every now and again. And that's what that I'm comfortable with that degree of Ayurvedic thinking. You know, they guide you in terms of what food you should combine and what you shouldn't. Uh, I, I only wrote today on Facebook that, you know, I was studying about food the Ayurvedic way, something that I knew already, which is that Ayurveda would be very much against frozen food because the chi, as Chinese would call it, or the mm -hmm. prana, the life force, is gone, mostly gone out of it. And I wrote that in my freezer, all I have is a, a few peas and uh, maybe one main meal for when I'm lazy. <laughs> so I eat all fresh stuff. Yeah. Ayurveda itself does, we'd need two hours or 10 days or something. But just to say this, it's a holistic system of wellness. It looks at your mind, the health of your mind, as much as it looks at the medical part of things. And that's why I love it. Well worth a little bit of study. And how important it is in these in these days now of stress and, and concern. Your, your final... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, your final musical choice, BB, is you're kind of looking forward now to when this COVID times are over. Blackie O'Connell, going to hear Blackie. Well, oh, yeah, but can I tell you how that happened? It was only not that long ago I was listening to Sunday Miscellany on RTE. Mm -hmm. And, you know, very often when I'm listening to a programme, I, I have the bad manners of maybe doing something else at the same time. And this piece of music came on and it just stalled me in its beauty. And I listened to the end of Miscellany and then I wrote down the name of it and it seemed to be Dawn Chorus. I went online, I couldn't find it anywhere, but I saw it was Blackie O'Connell and I saw that he was on Facebook. So I sent him a note and I said, where can I get it? And we struck up a bit of a conversation. And I told him, asked him about the pipes, that they're my favourite instrument and that the closest I've come uh, to playing anything like that would be a pipe organ. And he said, did I know that the Illin pipes are actually known as the Irish organ? So I said, if ever I came down and heard you again, would you show me just the scale? He said, come down to Doolin when this is over. And actually, I had heard his music once before in Doolin and I'd quite forgotten that I had. So this, this piece is just hauntingly beautiful. And down to Doolin I will go post-Covid. What a lovely way to uh, finish this programme with a, a joyful prospect of what's ahead. Bibi Baskin, it was lovely chatting with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, Des. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.